What's up, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of the Professional Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Ken Gunter, and we are joined this week by Dr. Chris Minson. Now, if you don't know about Dr. Chris Minson's work, uh, he is the head of the University of Oregon's Department of Physiology. He's an expert in human adaptions to environmental extremes, and he has, fortunately for us, a specific interest in understanding athletic performance in high heat conditions. So Dr. Minson, we're going to talk about it a little bit today, works with elite athletes, Olympians, professional athletes, the very serious amateur athlete as well, who's looking to eke out, uh, you know, small percentage gains uh, to improve their performance. What I really enjoyed is one, it's so interesting to hear about the work that he and his team are doing at the University of Oregon. Uh, and we talk about the environmental chamber that they've built. I don't want to spoil it. Very, very cool. But there's a lot of really tactical takeaways from this conversation. So taking a conversation or a, a topic rather that could be very complex, he does a great job of breaking it down. Um, so if you're someone who came to this episode and you have maybe a competition coming up where you expect it's going to be hot and you want to get yourself prepared, there's a lot in here for you. If you're also just the average listener and you want to live longer and live a healthier life, there's a lot in here for you as well. And what I was actually surprised by is a lot of the things that you can do to adapt yourself to high heat conditions are actually really approachable and probably something most people have access to, whether it be at home or a gym or some sort of nearby center. So a great episode. And one of the things that Dr. Minson kindly offered was if you have any questions coming out of this one, uh, please feel free to send them to me and I will gladly pass them along and we can get them answered. If you want to do that, go to KenGunter.com. There's a contact section there where you can drop me an email. Uh, if you'd prefer, you can also go to Instagram. Hit me up on at the underscore professional athlete. And uh, yeah, I'll gladly pass those along. So thank you, Dr. Minson, for offering to do that. Uh, let's see, folks. With that, if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe. And if you'd be kind enough to leave us a rating and review, that would be greatly appreciated. Helps more folks find the show. Uh, man, this is a great one. Let's just cut to the chase and get it started. So without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Chris Minson to the show. Here we go. I gotta get up. I got too much to do. Yeah, I gotta get going. I gotta talk. All right. Well, Chris, uh, I am pumped to have you on. Thank you for joining the show. Thank you. I'm, I'm very excited as well. This is great. Yep. So I, I meant to tell you uh, before we started, but uh, when I was preparing for this, my daughter was watching, I think, Scooby-Doo in the background. And uh, she was like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm, I'm having a scientist on the podcast. And her eyes just lit up. Like in, in her world right now, what she wants to be is, and probably in this order, acrobat, uh, scientist, dancer, singer. So scientist is right up there. So I've been trying to keep her interested in like what I do for years to no avail. But when she heard I'm having a scientist, like she's never been more interested. So that's <laughs> you've, awesome. you've made her weak. 
That's awesome. Well, I, you know, I try and do a fair bit of outreach to uh, middle school students, uh, elementary school students, sometimes a lot of high school students, uh, and try and try and get them interested to come at the lab and see what we do and get excited about science because we, we need more good scientists. We need need more people really believing in science and wanting to see good science. And, and uh, uh, it's just a it's an awesome gig. I mean, if you people want to go into a field, where you always have a job and always have things to keep you interested. Science is a good place to go. Yeah. Well, and I've loved looking at uh, what I, what I have access to see the lab that you've built up at the university of Oregon. Uh, and oh, I want to make, I want to make sure we get to talk about this environmental chamber that I keep seeing YouTube videos of because that, that just looks awesome. And I'll tell you, we're, we're, um, uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm at the university of Oregon and, uh, Oregon, Eugene, Oregon is really well known as track town USA. So there's a lot oh, of yeah. interest in track and field here. And, uh, in 2021, theoretically, there's supposed to be the uh, World Track and Field Championships here. And so it's the first time in American soil, which is shocking considering oh, uh, wow. the dominance of the U.S. in track and field. Um, and that will be here in Eugene. And so as part of that, they built a brand new stadium. The world famous historic uh, Hayward Field has been kind of destroyed. And a whole oh, new stadium has been that. put in. So if you get online and look at University of Oregon and look at Hayward Field, you'll see a whole different look. And it, it's going to be a world-class facility some sadness for all of us to see the original historic where Prefontaine ran and yeah. all these famous events happened. Um, but my new lab will actually be in part of that building. So I'll be in the, kind of the one of the corners there with uh, two of my colleagues. So it's going to be pretty, pretty cool. Oh, very cool. You know, I actually went to Hayward Field. I guess I was a senior in high school. Um, I played football in college and the, the Nike Combine, uh, at least regionally, was at the University of Oregon. But I remember, you know, while we were outside Autzen Stadium, my dad and I like made sure we got there a day early so we could walk the campus and specifically go check out Hayward Field. So I'm glad I got the opportunity to do that, even though I guess it was, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. But um, that's amazing. And as if the University of Oregon needed better facilities, now the track team is going to have a world-class facility. Yeah, uh, exactly. That's exciting. Well, very cool. Well, I, I think a great place to start because um, you do so much interesting work. And like I said before we started, a million things I want to ask you. Um, could you give people a little bit of context as to what it is you're currently doing at the University of Oregon uh, in terms of your research? Sure. Um, I'm an integrative cardiovascular physiologist. And what that means is my focus is cardiovascular physiology, but I look at it a very integrative perspective. I want to look at how the different organ systems all interact, but primarily around cardiovascular. Um, I'm also an environmental physiologist, so my true love and passion is really how the environment, either acute exposures or with chronic exposure, impacts mm -hmm. uh, human health as well as human performance. So it's really that, that, that blending of, of cardiovascular and other aspects of physiology with environmental challenges um, in the context of both health and performance that just totally get me up and going every morning. Yeah. And, and when you say performance, are we talking about like high level elite athlete performance or does it truly run the gamut in, in terms of like kind of what that definition can mean in terms of like what you're researching? Sure. It, it can mean uh, the whole gamut. Absolutely. And one thing that's really, really tough is doing very, very good, uh, well-controlled studies in the elite athletes. So a oh. lot of work I do is actually working with athletes on individual basis to make them better, to make them perform better. Um, and uh, but that oftentimes doesn't translate into an actual research study because we, hmm. we have an N of four. And right now, you, how do you keep a, a one control group and not a control group? So. Um, so a lot of that, that work, we kind of keep in house and other things, but then I, I, I 
put it out there with my talk, my, my uh, uh, presentations and other things that I do as far as we're doing with the elites. Um, what we do get a lot more is kind of that, that sub elite level. So if you, you mm. know, I'm a, I'm a uh, struggling cyclist or former cyclist or something like that. Um, and so those of you who know cycling kind of know the category one, two, three for cycling and four and five. Um, so we're looking really at people like who are, you know, that, that cat two, um, so not quite national team, but they're very, very good, uh, competent cyclists. And the same thing with the runners, people who can pretty much go anywhere in the country and, and, uh, uh, win 10 Ks and other things, but they're also not competing at the elite level. So we get a lot of that kind of, kind of research coming through. So a lot of folks who, like you said, are at a very high level, but are trying, are they trying to eke out any performance gains to take them to the next level? Is that, is that kind of the intent there? Sometimes. Yeah. Some, I'd say that's definitely part of it. Um, and again, with Eugene being unique in the track town USA, we get a lot of runners who are here for that purpose to immerse themselves in the running culture and the fastest people. Um, I think Boulder, Colorado is another place like that. And so you get a lot of these just under that elite level to try to crack into that. But there's also a lot of just age groupers who, you know, who want to get a little bit faster as well. Um, and then, of course, we dovetail that with the, the, the ill, the sick, right? We have um, a couple of mm. clinical trials looking at people who are obese, people with um, uh, hypertension, uh, if people taking medications. We also look at that and see how these environmental stressors can improve their cardiovascular and metabolic health. Yeah. So with that, and, and you mentioned uh, Colorado, which for me immediately, I think, you know, mile high, thinner air. Like that's why a lot of these athletes go train. In the, and I think the Olympic training facility, right, is, is in Colorado. Yeah, Colorado I'm, Springs. Colorado Springs, yeah. right. They also have one um, in San Diego as well. Oh, okay. Awesome. Well, boy, I would like to get signed up for that one. Uh, <laughs> so w- with that in mind, you know, when, when you start looking at opportunities to help athletes improve their performance um, and perhaps they go hand in hand, like t- to what extent uh, is, is the biggest opportunity w- looking at things from purely a cardiovascular level um, versus looking at things from like an environmental level? Because I know you specialize uh, in, in understanding like how the body reacts to heat, uh, performs in heat, correct? Is that a, is that an accurate description? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I've done you know as an as a true integrative physiologist and environmental physiologist, I look at different environments as well. I've done work in hypoxia and you know high altitude, done stuff in cold as well. But certainly, heat has been kind of where I've kind of carved out a, a, a niche for myself, um, and that's where a lot of people come to me for. Um, a yeah. lot of cases, it's it's uh, started off. I should say, um, if you want me to go the whole history, I can tell you how. I oh kind of yeah, please, I would love it. Okay. All right. Sure. Sure. Well, um, how far back to go, I guess. Really, I was, uh, I did my undergrad at University of Arizona and I was a bike racer there, cyclist. And I went to California to try and, uh, you know, try and make the pro ranks and all that kind of stuff. And then ran into a little problem where I wasn't fast enough. And I guess you want to be a pro, you got to be really, really fast. No one told me that. <laughs> um, so I was kind of looking for something to do in San Diego. I was coaching, swimming and doing triathlons and kind of mucking about started uh, San Diego State uh, uh, working there as a, as a grad student doing my master's and I saw I was looking for a job as well and because um, being a non-professional cyclist does not pay very well yeah <laughs> and so uh, so I saw a flyer to go um, work for the Naval Health Research Center there in San Diego and this is uh, right around the time of the first Gulf War and uh-huh. so I talked to my professors who I saw their name on the flyer and they said, oh, yeah, yeah, contact this person, call. And so I ended up getting hooked up with the uh, Naval Health Research Center there. And we were doing heat strain countermeasures. So the United States was prepared mm. at that point to go and fight the Cold War. Um, and the next thing you know, we're heading off to this hot desert. And so there are a lot of problems. And the concern at the time was that Saddam Hussein had um, biochemical warfare. So they're having to wear these mop warfare gear, which is basically like the oh, like wearing plastic bags to keep chemicals out, right? 
in the desert in, in the desert oh wow absolutely yeah yeah so we're looking at ways to keep these people uh specifically the marines these men and women alive um without overheating so hmm. uh and i was just uh, i was just basically cleaning rectal probes and and doing that kind of stuff so i wasn't <laughs> not not very glorious but at some <laughs> point um uh, some of my uh military advice people in the military there as well as my professor said you know you kind of seem to like this research thing you should think about it and that was the first time i started thinking wow research End up going to Penn State, worked with a guy who's like one of the world's uh, experts on aging and temperature regulation, Larry Kenny. Um, and really from that, you know, during that time, I was also, uh, my master's thesis was looking at some uh, elite performance. And I, so I kind of started blending the things between I really love. I like working with patient populations, seeing real improvements in health. I definitely like environmental physiology. Um, as I mentioned, cardiovascular is kind of my main area because I was always intrigued by the heart and the blood vessels. Hmm. And so it's really been a blending from all those things. But what really got me going, um, I guess, with working uh, at the elite level performance and really having the opportunity was uh, we were helping, is right before the Beijing Olympics. And we thought that the Beijing Marathon could potentially be really, really hot, the hottest on record. It's possible, oh, yeah. it's possible Japan in 2021 could actually be hotter. Um, but it was, uh, so Beijing was going to be very, very hot. And so well, and the, the air quality there too was, that was a huge concern at the time, I remember as well, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, and uh, I was interviewed a couple of times about the air quality stuff. And that's really not my area of interest or area of expertise, I have to say, certainly interest. Yeah. Um, and there's there wasn't much they could do about that. You can't really prepare for bad air. Right. You can try and right. filter it out or other things, but how you train for it is a little harder. <laughs> yeah. So training for the heat was a little different. So yeah. I was working with uh, one of the top uh, U.S. marathoners at the time, a guy named Dathan Ritzenheim. Hmm. Uh, and uh, his coach approached us and said, look, we know it's going to be hot. What are we going to do? And I said, well, the best thing we can do is heat acclimate. And in starting working with Dathan, I realized a couple of things. One is that when you're working with that level athlete, especially one who does a long endurance athlete, right? Mm. They're just putting massive miles into their body, into their legs, and it's a pounding. And so you can't say, well, just go do a whole bunch more work. You'll be fine. You'll get ready for the heat. These are really finely, finely tuned machines, right? These, these yeah. humans, they're like working with thoroughbreds, really twitchy. You don't want it easy to overtrain, um, don't want to disrupt things. So we really put a lot of thought into, okay, how can we get Dathan ready to perform at his best in the heat and uh, yet not detract his performance at all? And mm. my concern at the time was, well, if we look at the physiology and kind of think through it, there are some reasons to think that if we got him ready for his highest performance in a hot condition, is it possible we could deter his we could like have him have not as good a performance if it wasn't as hot because you can't predict the weather on a given day, right? We right. kind of thought it'd be hot, um, but you'd never know for sure. And so we, so luckily, uh, we started finding out that that uh, through some other little side projects at the time to make sure we're doing what we're doing. I didn't see any way that if we did this heat stress right, heat acclimation right, that we would deter his performance if it was a bit less hot. Um, on the day of the marathon, um, you know, the the uh, cameras were all on a guy named Ryan Hall because he was the U.S.'s top runner. Mm. Um, it ended not being quite as hot as we kind of thought it might be. I think it okay. was hot, hotter. Uh, uh, Dathan might have done even better, but he ended up being the top American. I think he placed eighth overall. Um, had a great marathon. Uh, and despite it being so hot, he actually performed really well. And like I said, Ryan Hall, I think, was not as prepared for the heat and really mm. faded. And so... Uh, that was really, really interesting and kind of eye-opening for us too to work with that level athlete and to make sure that what we're doing is, you know, um, it's very easy to get heat acclimated. Humans yeah. have amazing ability to, to adapt to the heat. It's shaped, it's shaped our evolution. It's shaped all kinds of stuff. So, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing how high temperatures we can perform as long as we have adequate water to, to, to bring, it, bring in, to stay hydrated so we can sweat, then we can keep performing really, really well. 
Um, but it's different when you look at an elite athlete and want, not want to de- deter their performance. So we followed that up with a, a kind of extensive study in cyclists. Um, sometimes I do cyclists because it's my own personal interest, but yeah. also it's uh, easy to quantify the work, right? We can look at actual uh, watts and actual workloads and those kind of things. And um, yeah. it's also easier to study someone who's not on a treadmill bouncing all over the place, right? As opposed to being in a, in a, in a more stable position. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so we recruited a bunch of these uh, sub-elite, uh, Cat 2, Cat 1, a uh, couple Cat 1s and a Cat 3 cyclists, um, and we, we did a, a pretty extensive project where we looked at all kinds of cardiovascular measures. We wanted to compare them uh, after a 14-day heat acclimation period, um, what their performance was before and after in both hot and cool conditions. And hmm. what we found is that uh, by doing it the way we did it, um, we can actually improve someone's we knew, we knew they get better in the heat, so they perform much better in the heat after the heat acclimation period. Right. But they also perform better in the cool condition after the heat acclimation period. And that was a little bit surprising. And so we thought if nothing else might be you know, level out the same, but in some cases, is it possible they could actually have improvement or would we make it worse? And like hmm. we saw with Dathan, it, and we saw that um, we actually saw a little better improvement, I think, with the heat acclimation. Hmm. Um, and this, that kind of, we, we published that paper and it's gotten a lot of attention both in the lay press and also in the, in the, um, uh, physiological journals. Yeah. And some people have, have, have confirmed it. Some people have said it, it's not exactly, it doesn't have help, help in the cool. So there's a lot of controversy right now. It's, it's quite exciting to look at the area because, you know, science yeah. is never perfect and you tweak a couple of variables here, tweak a couple of variables there, things might change, um, but I, I and others have also used this extensively with elite level athletes, um, as well as a lot of the sub elites. And uh, one of the take home messages I always have for people is, is if you think there's a chance that's going to be hot, where you're going to be performing, you're going to be exercising, you're better off getting heat acclimation. If you do it right, we can talk about that in a moment. If we do that right, yeah. then there's almost no downside to it, hmm. uh, to getting heat acclimated. And in certain individuals, I'd say there's definitely some. Uh, level of improvement performance and this could be only a two or three four percent improvement performance but that's the difference between being a gold medalist and being 10th in the pack right right that kind of, at, that, at that level so yeah. it's, it's pretty exciting it's, it's pretty interesting um and like i said it has to be done the right way and that's where people kind of go uh, for lack of a better term pear-shaped i guess is they they kind of kind of don't do it the right way and overcook themselves um, but it's a, it's literally, yeah, literally. Yeah, exactly. Literally. Yeah. Overcook themselves as far as temperature as well as just uh, way too much fatigue in their body. Yeah. So I have a couple questions there, you know, what, how much work is actually required or maybe it's time spent in uh, a different, you know, environment to actually become acclimated. Like you said, th- this initial test was over 14 days. Right. Yeah. We've used 10 and 14 day protocols for, um, heat acclimation. That was actually, I think 10, I think I misspoke. I think it was actually 10 day heat acclimation oh, okay. protocol we did. Yeah. Yeah. What happens is, so, um, each environment is different. And so, you know, if you go to high altitude, for instance, uh, you have certain adaptations in a couple of days, a couple adaptations about four or five days after that, but you're not really fully acclimated until you can start making new red blood cells. Um, mm. that's why that, you know, live high, train low idea comes from. So you need to be, you know, 14 to 21 days before you really start getting fully adapted to that uh, environment. And that's why folks hang out at base camp for, like you said, like <laughs> weeks, month, right? Right, right. Before they, yeah. before they try and ascend Everest. Right. Yeah. Yep. And yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That, that being up that high is actually detrimental to aerobic performance, which we can talk about in a second here. Mm. But with the with the uh, with the heat, though, it's a little different. I mean, you know, if we put someone in a heat chamber and look at their core, their their how high their core temperature gets, or how how high their heart rate gets at a given workload under a certain higher environmental temperature, 
every day we do that, they start, they're improving. So by day three, day four, day five, they're tolerating the heat stress much, much better. Hmm. We typically say for a performance perspective, we want people to get about 10 to 14 days of uh, heat exposure to really kind okay. of be making sure for that environment that they're, that they're uh, adapted well for that. And, and what sort of like physiological adaptions are actually taking place that makes it, uh, I don't know if the right word is easier, but it enables an athlete to actually start to perform better in, in, in you know, hotter environments? Yeah, that's a great question. There's, there's, you know, I'll, I'll try and keep it fairly straightforward because it really gets, uh, it can get co complex very quickly. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. D dumb it, dumb it down. For me. <laughs> I'm dumbing it down. Trust me. The, I, I, I always tell everyone, you know, I, I surround myself by people much smarter than me, uh, purposely because I, there's so many, I have so many bright grad students and co coordinators and everybody else who work around me. So uh, I learn more from them than they do for me. I think so. I'm, I'm very good about dumbing it down because bring it down to my level. Perfect. Um, we're gonna, we're gonna yeah. get along famously then. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd say um, really one of the first things that happens is that uh, we have an increase in plasma volume and that's the amount of water that's in our blood. So we get hmm. an expansion of our plasma volume of our blood volume uh, within just a couple days. And, and that's one of the real physiological changes that underpin better adaptation to, to the, to the heat. That's one of the things that happens really early on. The second thing is, is, you know, our perception of the heat also goes way down. So uh, our, our um, heart rate, for instance, uh, and our way we, our thermal comfort, each successive successive day with heat acclimation, we start seeing declines in these. So, if, let's say mm. you're, you're doing a run in a in a relatively cold, cool environment, and your heart rate at a given speed and speed and grade is about 140, right? We put you in the heat. Now you're at 160, 165. Mm. Uh, for that same speed, same grade, same everything. Just now the, the heat, right? So. Then successive days by day, you know, three, five, seven, 10, 14, we're going to start seeing that heart rate of 160, start going back down to that 140 that you would be if it had been oh, a wow. colder temperature. So that, so, and that's partly due to the plasma volume shift. Part of that's um, our, our sweating becomes more effective if you, for lack of a better term. It starts a little okay. bit early. Um, we can have a higher sweat rate for a given uh, body temperature and that can help us cool our bodies a little better. And if you're saying, well, now I'm sweating more, so you need to be taking more fluids, but you also have expanded plasma volume. So there's some benefits to that. Um, oh. And so uh, those are kind of the, the real, the, some of the real key things that kind of start early on that really make uh, adaptation to the heat better. And I imagine, um, like you said, for China, I imagine Rio was a similar story. When these high level athletes come in and, and they're preparate, prep, I don't even know if I'm using the right word here, preparing for like heat acclimation. Like how, how much time per day do they need to spend actually getting acquired or is time not even like the right kind of like unit of measure in terms of like getting the body to, to adapt? Time is a great measure. Yeah. Um, and I'd say time and perception. So a lot of athletes oh. uh, we, we work with, uh, uh, don't have access to measuring their core temperature. Some people, of course, don't like to have rectal temperatures. We have ingestible pills that are very expensive. Um, other methods don't don't work well enough to really look at core temperature during exercise. And so, so, so really, it's time at temperature that makes the biggest difference. Um, so, uh, we we aim for getting people's body temperature. I was thinking Celsius. So I'll say about thirty eight five. Um, uh, degrees Celsius, but we're talking about about, about 100 to 100 degrees Celsius, uh, Fahrenheit. We want to get people's body temperature up to. So huh. if we can get them up to that temperature and hold them there for upwards of an hour on 10 days, so it could be 10 days over 15 days, for instance, so it doesn't have to be every day. We know we can get them heat acclimated and they'll be much better for that environment. 
um, it, it does get a little complicated when talking about the elites again. Um, and mm. I'll tell you one complication is, as you mentioned, Rio. Rio is not only hot and dry or uh, hot, and it's also very humid, right? So that makes the things a lot more difficult. <laughs> oh. now, you're, now you're sweating efficiency and ability to evaporate the sweat, which is what cools you off, has, has gone away. So, right. um, but still heat acclimation will still make a real big difference in that, in that environment as well. So, so one of the things that when working with elites, that is really, really, really key is that we can't take someone like a Dathan Ritzenheim or, uh, you know, uh, I know you had, um, you had a lot of elite athletes on here. We can't, we can't take one of them and say, Oh, okay. Now you got to spend the next three weeks. You got to put 10 to 12, 14 days of heat acclimation in there. Cause that's right. going to, it's going to fatigue them. They're going to, the first few days, especially doing heat acclimation, you're more tired, you feel dehydrated, you might throw your sleep off, all these kind of things. So we got to try and be really, really careful. So one thing we did mm. in that study in cyclists um, that I think was really important. And one thing that, that we did also with uh, the elite athletes like Dathan Ritzenheim early on was we looked at their training training program. And we said, okay, what are days that we can trickle in some heat? And we definitely do not want them doing, um, heat before any kind of really key workout. If they have a really high intensity interval day or they have a really long run they have to do and have to perform at a certain tempo, we don't want to disrupt that. If we're adding heat on those days and making them run slower or anything else, they're not going to perform as well. So mm. we really have to try and dose the heat at the right time frame to improve their their performance. So oftentimes, you know, they could do uh, their uh, a harder workout day and then come back and later that afternoon, they would, they would uh, uh, add, we'd add heat stress to them. And this could be even through hot tubs. Uh, I worked with a bunch of um, uh, national caliber uh, uh, steeplechasers and we did the same thing. Um, They're coming down from altitude and we were trying to keep use heat acclimation to help improve and maintain their, their blood volume up high and get them heat acclimated. And so we, we had them do their, their really intense workouts. They finish and come in where they just kind of sit in their hot tub for uh, 45 minutes afterwards to keep oh, the body wow. temperature up. How, how long? Yeah, so actually, pretty well. yeah that's interesting. And I, I, that actually, now I have two questions for you. Um, mm-hmm. I guess one, like how long uh, do those adaptations last? So like, you know, you're kind of making me think about this in a different way, right? You, you don't want to take an elite athlete who's heading to the Olympics and then I guess have them spend like 10 days straight uh, running in a really taxing environment. Because to your point, right, it is, it's, it's more difficult. They're trying to, they're probably also trying to peak. Um, so interested in understanding, you know, how, how long do those adaptations last? But then I guess a follow-up question is also, because um, when you said hot tub, I hadn't considered that, right? I just thought like running in a hot environment. So does does it matter like what type of environment you're actually being exposed to the heat? Yeah. So let's take the second one first. Um, okay. Yeah. And it's a great question. The way you, way you phrased it was great. Um, so in general, it doesn't matter how you get the heat. We want to get the body temperature up. We want to get it high enough for the physiological adaptations, but hmm. there's a cognitive side of two, right? And so um, if you're taking an elite athlete and they're going to be running in Beijing or they're running in a very cold environment or they're going to be running at a higher altitude, we want them to feel that, to know what that's like. And you can't simulate that by someone sitting in a hot tub quite as easily. So when we're talking about the elites of the elites, then definitely we want to try and simulate the environment they're going to perform in. Um, last year's NC2A championships well sorry two years ago now because they were canceled last year yeah, year oh, yeah. before um we're in 
Austin, Texas. And so we had a bunch of the U of O duck athletes who train here and it's usually pretty cool still in May and June. And, uh, you know, we, we wanted to get them in the chamber and, and in our environmental chamber and, and heat it up and get them just so they felt like what's like to run in a hundred degree heat with mm-hmm. about 50%, 60% relative humidity. And the first few days they hated it, right. Just absolutely hated it. Um, but we're doing it carefully. So not disrupting their most important workouts. Um, but then by day four or five, six, they're, they're running great. And then by the time I went down there, um, you know, the coaches came back to me later and said, I saw all these athletes complaining and, and, and feeling horrible and just walking out they weren't even hot yet this came out of the hotel room they're like oh my gosh it's so hot I, i'm not gonna be able to run in this where the right. athletes who worked with us were like yeah let's go i'm used to this i've, I've been doing this for the last past couple of weeks right past three weeks or so yeah oh that's amazing so well and i, I can relate too i mean I, I actually grew up uh north of seattle and just something as easy as going to the east side of the state for like our state track meet like all of us who were on the West Coast where it was pretty temperate, like when we got out there, we're like, oh my God. And it was, that was dry heat. So right. a, completely, a completely different animal than what we've been talking about with like Rio um, or even, I guess Austin might be a little bit more dry, but um, yeah, I, I can completely relate. Just like right. the mental, the mental toll that takes if you're not prepared. So that, that has to be just a huge advantage. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is. Yeah. And even if even to go outside the physiological side of things, which I know there are some benefits to heat acclimation on that, it's the, the psychological and cognitive load the person has. You know, a lot of people are they're concerned about the heat, start drinking a whole bunch of water. I've got to make sure I'm really topped up with my water. And then they end up getting hyponatremia because they're flushing out so much of their electrolytes. Right. And they get cramping mm. and all kinds of stuff. So it's, it's a del- delicate thing. So getting an athlete to really prepare for these environments, be used to it is, is something that's really, really, really important. And you also asked how long this how long the benefits go. One yeah, thing that's nice about heat is why we, why I want to, if I'm going to have an athlete prepare for a certain event, let's say the event's June 1st, I don't want them coming to me. It does happen sometimes, you know, on, on May 20th saying, oh, we got this big event in 10 days. What are we going to do? I'm like, okay, well, we can do some things, but if you had come to me a month ago or two months ago, we would have started trickling this in, getting used to it, really mm-hmm. integrating it well with their, um, with their, uh, uh, their, their event and their training. Um, so the good thing is, is that uh, once you go through heat acclimation, um, it's about a one to two ratio. And this, I'll try and explain this best I can. If okay. you do about uh, 10 days of good heat acclimation, um, then over the next 20 days, you'll start slowly, gradually losing some of that benefit. So that okay. every two days, you don't get another heat exposure, you lose about one day of that heat acclimation. Hmm. Right. So, but the thing that's nice about that is that once you've got that heat acclimation in you, that two weeks, if you then trickle in one day or two days a week of another heat exposure, then you're going to, you can extend that out. And no one really has any good data about how long you can extend out the benefits. Um, we've kind of looked at what happens when you just stop completely. Right. So yeah. the acclimation period over the next 20 days, you'll kind of gradually lose that. But if you add in one or even sometimes just doing intense exercise um, in a little bit warmer environments, your temperature, your body temperature gets up high enough, we'll see some some preservation of that benefit for longer periods of time. So it's, it's a fairly robust response, meaning that it doesn't just like disappear immediately. You know? hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's, um, it sounds very similar and I guess it would make sense because it's it, they're all physiological ad- adaptations. But thinking about like strength training, Right. Mm-hmm. Like if you get to a point and you peak, you, you don't have to continue to train kind of like at that rigor every week moving forward. You can kind of like maintain a lot of that by tapping back into it. I think it's, I don't know what it is, every week or two, two weeks, three weeks, whatever it is. Um, but that's that that sounds really interesting. One thing that I, I definitely want to make sure, because we've talked about it a lot already, C- can you explain what this environmental chamber is? 
sure, for, people who are sure. To, for people who are trying to visualize this over the audio. Yeah, sure, sure. It's one of my favorite toys in my lab. Um, yeah. The long story short, it's a 12 foot by 12 foot by 12 foot walk-in freezer. And honestly, that's exactly huh. what it's made. The same material, that's what it looks like. Uh, oh. The difference is, is that, you know, we can control the temperature from that. So we can go really from well below freezing. So, uh, you know, down to almost zero degrees uh, Fahrenheit, all the way up to uh, very, very hot. It's about 140 degrees Fahrenheit. So you can really manipulate that temperature very, very closely. But we can also manipulate the humidity. So we can make it from a very dry Arizona day to a very, very hot day in the summer, you know, Georgia, for instance, right? Hmm. We can really have the whole range of humidity from, from about 10% humidity all the way up to about 95% humidity. <laughs> um, what's unique about our chamber is that we can also, um, you know, it's not true hypobaric, meaning we can't lower the blood, the, the, sorry, the, uh, the uh, air pressure like you do by going to altitude. What we ah, do okay. is we replace some of the oxygen in the room with nitrogen. This comes with those Colorado altitude tent systems, or people are trying to simulate high altitude in there by sleep, sleeping in a tent are yeah. doing the same thing. You're, you're just increasing the nitrogen, which is a for the most part an inert gas for us. That mm-hmm. means your oxygen level, if it's if it's you know normally at about 21%, we can knock it down to 10%. Now you're basically kind of like you're up at the top of Pikes Peak. Right, oh, wow. and, you're, and you're up there, so we can then simulate. So we can really simulate using those different different uh, uh, factors there. Simulate anywhere where humans live long term on the planet. Hmm. And I mentioned we're going to be moving into this new uh, facility, and we have a, a, a another chamber. Again, we're going to have so I'll have a second one. This one will actually be able to control the wind speed in one part of the chamber really well too. So now we can actually simulate air movement, which is always oh, tough wow. for us to do. Yeah, so be able to have you know because like cyclists in particular, um, you know, you you put someone you know, working at say 350 Watts, um, with very little airflow, they're going to get really, really hot more so in our chamber than they would outside. But now we can put a 20, 24 mile per hour headwind on them and get, get adequate cooling. So now we're really simulating the outside environment as far as, uh, yeah. air as well. Oh, wow. That's, that's really interesting. It's fun. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. Now does, does, uh, a researcher also have to be in that 12 by 12 by 12 box or do you get to, uh, kind of witness all of this from the comfort of your, uh, you know, temperature controlled AC <laughs> lab. <laughs> right. I am, I am a, a big, big believer in that. If you're going to ask a subject to do something, you better have done it yourself. Right. I can't force my trainees and my postdocs and others to, in a, in, in a, uh, uh, like, coordinators to to go into the chamber and do things unless you're collecting data of course but i want everyone to experience it so i put myself through anything i've ever asked my subjects to do i've done myself i love the heat i love getting in there i love the cold it's fun to get in there i mean we'll say we've done some studies where you know now that i'm the the boss man i guess i can be like well um i gotta go uh grade some papers or i gotta go do this i gotta go write a grant right, right, right. Um, <laughs> they're all looking at me like yeah it's really bloody cold in here and you want out we get it um yeah, oh, you guys are sure. training for that meet in New Orleans? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I got some finals papers I got to attend to, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I got I got that that thing I got to take care of. Yeah, yeah, right. But I, do, right. I, do. I, I love it. I mean, I, you know, uh, being a athletic um, minded person, I, I think is just really and loving physiology. One thing that's really cool is that I get to test my own physiology whenever I want. Right? Um, oh, sometimes cool. my motivation isn't there. Like, wow, I should really go and do this. And it's like. Uh, it sounds miserable, <laughs> but well, then, I, then I turn around and do it though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that, that's actually a perfect segue because, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about, you know, how this is used to create positive adaptation for elite athletes. Um, are there, are there also benefits to, and I guess it could be like acute heat exposure, prolonged heat exposure for, I mean, just like the average person. 
Absolutely. Yep. Yep. So, um, you know, one thing that happens is the the more work you do and the harder you work, humans are only about 25% efficient. That means that any work mm. you're doing, any metabolic rate you have, and of course, an elite athlete work at their high levels, it's going to have a much higher metabolic rate. Only 25% of that actually goes into uh, the ability to do work. Other 75% is all generated as heat, byproduct the metabolism. So we have to dissipate that heat. So a very elite athlete is going to generate massive amounts of heat, right? Um, and they have to dissipate that. So that's kind of where, where um, we've seen some real benefits. But, but anybody doing work is going to only have about 25% efficiency as far as metabolic rate to creating uh, actual work. So they're going to generate a lot of heat as well. Um, and so the athletes, just by working at really, really high intensities, they're going to get some pretty good degree of heat acclimation. Those of us, we are mortals who work at lower levels, uh, have to are still generating a lot of heat, but we're not getting those normal high loads. So there, my point there being that, that, um, we can really adapt a lot to the high heat where maybe the oh. elites, because they do so much high intensity work and such a high workload, they're getting body temperatures up pretty regularly. I mean, it's almost impossible to run at the intensities. They are not getting your body temperature over, you know, uh, up to a hundred or so 101. Um, but the average, the average person who sits in an air conditioned office all day and, you know, might be a weekend warrior and, and either gets on the bike on the weekend or, you know, runs three times a week to your point. Like there's a, there's a large Delta that could be made up uh, in other words. Absolutely. Per- perfectly said. Yeah. Much better said than I, than I, no. <laughs> I just rambled on there, but yeah, you're exactly right. That's exactly the point. Right. I, oh. I will say, you know, one thing that becomes really interesting is when he published this paper, for instance, and I, I work with a lot of, like I said, sub elite, sub elite athletes as mm. well. And one thing that, that comes up a lot is, uh, that comes to me and they say, I, I, you know, I want to get this extra boost and, you know, two or 3% of my performance. So I really want to do this heat acclimation. Can you help me do it? And I'll say, well, let's look at your training first. Yeah. Let's look at your nutrition. Let's look at your sleep habits. Let's look at, you know, are you really training to get this maximized benefits? So a lot of people end up focusing on, on things like heat acclimation or other things, which again, I think are critically important, especially if you're going to be in a hot environment, then they become this much bigger players, but just to increase performance. Uh, there are so many aspects and out athlete, athlete yourself, you know, this, right? If you, if you can dial in for you, the mm. best training program, the best sprint working, uh, the best strength program, um, the best recovery program, uh, the the best mobility stuff that you can do, um, and the best sleep patterns. Sleep is such a huge one, right? And getting a lot of attention as it should right now with, with mm. athletes. Um, if you can dial all that stuff in, then start looking for the other things that might help you improve performance, um, like heat acclimation, or if you're going to be in a cold environment, cold. But I do think though um, that if there's a chance you're going to be in an extreme environment, high altitude colder environment, hot environment, you better think about that as well, because that can disrupt everything and have come, come, you know, go from, you could be really fit and trained. And if you don't get that right, you'll, you'll, you'll blow the whole thing. Yeah, no, that, that certainly makes sense. And, you know, there's been, uh, and it's funny, we can talk about this a little bit. When I initially reached out, it was, I saw, I saw that day an article, um, was was talking about the benefits of of training in cold conditions, right? Um, what the, there's also been a lot of discussion, and maybe maybe it might not even so much discussion, but increased awareness around things like saunas. Um, and I, usually, I feel like it's within the context of like longevity. Can can you speak to how beneficial um, you know regular heat exposure is uh, for someone in that regard versus you know a high level athletic performance? Trying to think about like, hey. I'm interested in living longer. I want to feel healthier for longer. I've heard a lot about saunas. Like, is this something that's worth my time? (laughs) 
Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, we were speaking a few minutes before we actually went on air. I think it was that time anyway. Um, (laughs) uh, And I have, uh, you know, a lot of my work is funded by National Institutes of Health, American Heart Association, and these are all in patient Mm -hmm. populations. And so uh, very early on, I got interested in how um, exposure to an extreme environments and particularly heat is very, very similar to an exercise stress. When you exercise Mm -hmm. every single cell of your body, knows you're exercising to some extent when you get heat stressed to the levels talking about right getting your body temperature up a couple degrees for instance every single cell of your body knows that and they're stressed Mm. your heart rate goes up your redistribution of blood flow goes up goes up your respiratory rate goes up um, blood flow changes throughout your body Um, all these things happen just like during exercise so i started really looking at okay so if we have some people who can't exercise or maybe perhaps aren't willing to exercise or there's other barriers to exercise. Yeah. Perfect example is we've done some work in people with spinal cord injury, paraplegics, for instance, oh, wow. right? And they can, they can exercise, train all they want, but they don't get quite the same benefits from a cardiovascular health standpoint as an able-bodied person does. Done some work with people with hypertension now. Um, you know, we think of, oh, exercise, so your blood pressure drops. Well, the blood pressure drop with exercise training really is not that great. So looking at other modalities or things that can include with exercise that might lower blood pressure. So there's a really growing body of, of research. I'm happy to say that I'm a very big part of that. That um, the literature in there is, comes from my lab, but then have a lot of other fantastic labs. Um, some out of Finland, of course, where sauna use is really, really big, and they've done the really long-term studies. Right. There's some really clear health benefits, everything from reductions of blood pressure to uh, improvements of blood flow. So reducing the risk of um, heart attacks and and stroke. Um, Metabolic uh, health gets better. So we have a study where we looked at uh, women with a disorder called uh, uh, polycystic ovary syndrome. And these women tend to be obese. Not all of them are. But they have a very high sympathetic outflow. They've got um, usually some degree of hypertension, some degree of insulin resistance. And with just heat therapy alone, repetitive bouts of like this is actually over, over more time. So let's talk about at least two months at this point. Okay. We, started, we saw some real reductions in, in uh, blood pressure. We saw great reductions in their sympathetic outflow, um, which is the flight or fight response. We, okay. we don't want that really active at rest. We saw that decrease. Um, their ability to use insulin improved profoundly. They didn't lose any weight whatsoever. So this is not a weight loss thing. Hmm. Um, and so it's, uh, uh, but um, arterial stiffness. So uh, as you age, your arteries get more stiff. We're seeing that is uh, greatly diminished with uh, repetitive bouts of heat stress. And this is hmm. sauna. This has been shown also in hot tubs. We've been focused primarily on, on um, hot tubs, um, but, uh, but sauna use Absolutely. So all of it's just, it's really, really, there are big time health benefits. I've convinced so many people to go, unfortunately, I'm not in the business of selling hot tubs and, and saunas, but I should have gotten into it. Um, not yet. Not yet. Yeah, exactly. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the Oregon or, or Oregon uh, hot tub or something like that. Yeah, there um, we go. Yeah. So, uh, but it, their, their health benefits are, are profound and, and long lasting as well. And and what is that? And so you mentioned things like um, you know arterial stiffness um, and blood flow. It, what, what's actually happening when someone gets in the hot tub, not exercising, um, that is maybe creating the benefit? Excellent question. Yeah, yeah. So it's like I was trying to say earlier. It, it's very much like exercise, right? Your heart has oh, to be great. faster, has to eat beat a little more um, forcefully um, to keep blood mm. circulating around. Um, that's just like exercise, and the heart is a muscle, so it, it can absolutely improve its ability to function. Your blood vessel, same thing. We know that um, without getting too technical into this, the the way the blood goes through your vessels. 
um, is really, really important to the health of those blood vessels. In general, you're, you're, I mean, you've seen probably pictures of blood flow um, where it kind of goes forward, backwards, forward, backwards, forward, backwards as the heart beats, right? It goes mostly forward, a little bit back, forward, a little bit back. Um, yeah. That creates a, what we call a sheer stress upon the uh, blood vessels. And mm. if you're always in that forward, backwards, forward, backwards, forward, backwards, um, it's not the healthiest thing for your blood vessels. So one mm. thing that happens during exercise, um, you think about this, you know, the blood vessels in your arm, by way of example, get healthier by doing leg exercise. How's that, right? Your arms aren't doing any work, but they're getting healthier. Part right. is because, and the same thing with the, with the blood vessels of the heart, right? And blood vessels in your brain, other places. Why, why is that? So part of it is because as you exercise, your auric heat stress, we found out, um, is that you're rather than going from this forward, backwards, forward, backwards, forward, backwards blood flow pattern, you go into this more forward flow for a period of time, mm. for a period of time while you're exercising and for a period of time um, after you're done exercising. And that more forward flow changes how the blood vessels, uh, the, the cells within the blood vessels respond. And you hear about this nitric oxide, right? This, this vasodilator that's so well known. It's the reason why everyone takes antioxidants because antioxidants break down nitric oxide. It's why people take Viagra because that helps prevent the breakdown of nitric oxide. So right. all these things that, that nitric oxide is really potent vasodilator. We know that the sheer pattern of this blood flow through those cells um, in your blood vessels makes a real difference in the health of those blood vessels. They have these more, more nitric oxide production. They have decreases in things that cause it to vasoconstrict. And uh, the, the blood vessels themselves change a little bit from these more stiff blood vessels to more flexible, distensible blood hmm. vessels. Other thing that's a little more complex is that we have these things called these, these proteins in our body called heat shock proteins. Yeah. They've been in our body forever. They, these heat shock proteins were actually part of our cells when we were amoebas floating around in the ocean, right? So <laughs> that millions and millions of years ago. So they're, they're a fundamental part of who we are. And they're called heat shock proteins because they're first identified in response to heat, heat but they're actually uh, really should be stress stress shock proteins. So so hypoxia or cold stress, a bunch of things can actually stimulate these these uh, proteins. And they're mm. really important. They're, again, they're in every one of our cells of our body, and they regulate a lot of our function. So it's almost impossible to exercise without your body temperature going up. So we know that, so we believe that some of the real benefits to exercise are actually because your body temperature is going up and you're activating and upregulating these heat shock proteins. Now, these heat shock proteins do all kinds of things. They're so involved in that nitric oxide path that I was mentioning about. They're actually also antioxidant. So they're going to help decrease the oxidative stress we get. They're anti-inflammatory. Low-grade inflammation is a real big problem right now. And one of the benefits of exercise that isn't too stressful is that we have this reductions in, in, uh, in inflammation in our body during the resting periods. But they also help make our cells stronger. They help hold the shape of the cells. So one area that's really – so I, I should finish that off by saying that what's really cool about these heat shock proteins is that they do all kinds of things. And we know they're upregulated with exercise. And we know they're upregulated with, um, with heat stress for two, two examples. What's wow, really okay. cool about them is that um, – and this would be an impossible study to really try and do in humans, I think. But um, they do make our structure of our cells better. So you as a football player, for example, I was a ski racer a long time ago and I've, you know, we used to ski race without helmets all the time because in, in the seventies, we didn't wear helmets to ski <laughs> yeah, race. What, right. What do we need that here. for? Yeah, exactly. No. So I, I know I've had at least four good ski concussions at least. Right. Um, but one thing that's been some, <laughs> some, some animal work very early on where they've looked at uh, concussions in animals and shown that um, a heat acclimated animal actually has less problems or less uh, results impact impacted mm. from a from a head injury so oh wow 
So I think that, you know, there's, and again, because, because these, these heat shock proteins are there making that the cells of the brain stronger. They also help clean up dirty proteins. So when you have a big injury or something um, that all that gook that comes out into the cells from that byproduct of that injury has to get cleaned up. The, the heat shock proteins help up- upregulate that. So again, I'd love to find a way to do the study the right way, but um, there's evidence at least from animal work that even heat, these heat shock proteins can be involved in recovery or prevention of the damage from, from things like concussions and even the recovery from it. So I think it's pretty, pretty cool. One of the things, so am I, am I understanding this correctly with the heat shock proteins? Is it that by working out by heat exposure and this, I'm sure is a, is a terrible oversimplification is, is it that our body actually creates more heat shock proteins and it, they're the benefit is that by having more of them, they're able to help with all these other processes that are kind of just so vital uh, to our everyday, like healthy physiology. Absolutely. Yep. It's exactly what it is. And okay. uh, the, the question becomes, well, how do they get upregulated? Well, we know that they're that, that in the heat, you can take, we, we've done this in our lab where we've taken isolated human cells and we grow them in a media and then we actually can um, heat them up, right? Mm. For up to physiological levels. And we'll see increase in heat shock proteins in those in individual cells. So even totally separate from the human body, they're, 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 they're able to, to upregulate. Um, as I mentioned before, they're, they're really more than heat stress, right? So many other stresses can actually upregulate these things. If we, you know, give you a big dose of some kind of virus, you'll actually see heat shock proteins go up because it's a stressor. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So a lot of things that can, a lot of things that can get upregulated. And what's interesting is that, you know, if you take someone who's totally sedentary, and let's face it, a lot of people like that, right? People don't like yeah. to be hot. People really don't like to be cold. People mm-hmm. don't like to exercise. So people like to just keep things as mellow and simple as possible. And I think that's not part of our human experience should be not being pushed through exercise, through heat stress, through going to altitude, right, through cold stress. So if we're thermostatic, then these heat shock proteins and other really important regulating hormones in our body decrease. Um mm-hmm. And then the unfortunate thing is if you're not actually, you're being unhealthy, then you've got, or, or being psychologically stressed and all the negative things that can come up that get chronically activated, like cortisol, right? Cortisol is really important home hormone. It's yeah. kind of our stress hormone, really important if you're you know, running away from a lion and trying to, to do that, but not good if you're chronically stressed for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then that cortisol is up all the time. So yeah. um, it's like, like anything else, you know, if you, 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 you use it the right way, you stress it, it's going to have a great adaptation to be really healthy. If you don't stress it at all, this is going to be downregulated. It's not going to be healthy. If you over, overcook it, do way too much, then you're going to downregulate things as well. So it's that, there's a happy window that it's, it's no different from anything else. Whatever what your doctors tell you, what your psychiatrists tell you, what your uh, uh, any health practitioner tells you, what your acupuncturist tells you, right? <laughs> None is not good. Right. Some, to, to, some <laughs> to a lot is really good, but too much is too much. Yeah. Well, it, you know, like I'm so glad you brought this up because I actually had it written down. I wanted to ask you about this, this idea of being thermostatic, which I think to a lot of people, well, first they're probably like, what the hell does that mean? Um, but it, it, am I correct? Thermostatic means that like this idea of, you know, like this AC driven world where we're able to kind of maintain like one consistent temperature all the time. We're not getting too hot. We're not getting too cold. Is that thermostatic? Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Going from your going going in the wintertime, you're going from your heated home to your heated car to your heated office. Well, yeah. in a normal year, I guess, right? <laughs> Maybe not this year. But then and then the summer you're going from your air conditioned house, your air conditioned car to your air conditioned uh, gym and then into your air conditioned work, right? Wherever you're going. So yeah, we're just we're not letting our body get challenged. And and I think that challenge is really, really central to to human health 
and performance. Yeah. Okay. And that, and I guess that's exactly what I wanted. Uh, I mean, you, you said as much, right? It's like the body needs to be challenged and it's essential. Right. And I guess Absolutely. an example Absolutely. would be like these, these shock, these heat shock proteins, which are so critical to just like the way that we operate. Um, so, you know, understanding how critical heat is to your point, uh, is like a mechanism to challenge, uh, the human body. Right. And it's critical to health. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you, and I actually saw it in one of your articles uh, or that, that you were mentioned in, that there's actually a facility in Manhattan where like people will train in the cold. And so one of the things that, that kind of like made me think, like, is there an optimal temperature that people should train within? Or I guess maybe a better way to put it is like, is there an optimal temperature for performance when we're talking about, um, you know, strength, speed, athletic endeavors? Great question and really, really fascinating topic. So hmm. one of my former uh, doctoral students, uh, Matt Ely, who's now uh, working at uh, Spalding Rehab, Rehab, Rehab Hospital uh, as part of Harvard, um, he's been, he, took, he took a deep dive and looked at this and looked at uh, uh, elite marathon performance and looked at hmm. all the different temperatures. And so from that, at least for, for running a marathon, uh, we know that the probably ideal temperature is right around 50 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's oh, actually wow. pretty chilly, right? It's pretty chilly. And that's because you're not, as soon as you go over that temperature, then you're kind of getting into a place where you're going to have to re rely on some really heat loss mechanisms. If you start going too cold, then sometimes people there, you know, when the response is to cold, your skin feels cold. And even before your body temperature drops, you get some muscle tension occurring. So if you're an elite runner and you get some, even a little bit of muscle tension, you have to fight against that a little bit. You're, mm -hmm. That's a, that small change in, a, in a economy, we call it. Efficiency, another way of looking at it. Yeah could be a difference between winning and losing. So what's happened is, um, and it, it speaks a little bit to the point I said earlier about um, making sure that we really separate our high intensity workouts. We want those in a cool environment. If you can't do the same intensity because it's too hot, you're not getting the, the, the neurological, the, the uh, mechanical, the muscle adaptations that you would if you were doing it in a, on a hot environment and doing less work, right? You're yeah. at a slower pace with a slower speed. So we want people to maximize their performance in a cooler environment. Um, and so that's what some of these, these places in Manhattan, other places, these, these cold, cold gyms, as they're called, right? The idea is, is that you can do more work and you even think about like a CrossFit workout, right? Yeah. I did CrossFit for a little while, pretty horrible at it, but, um, <laughs> but I enjoyed it. Um, and still do some of the, a lot of the moves and stuff. Um, yeah. But, uh, boy, you know, I would go into the box and then they have this, you know, it's here in Eugene. So in the winter times, it's, you know, 36, 38 and wet outside and, um, it's, you're cold in there, man, you're miserable. And then you start working out and within 20 minutes, you're just sweating buckets, right? So yeah. I can imagine the temperature of that room is 20 degrees, 30 degrees hotter, right? Um, then your then your some of your performance might go down. So idea for some of these cold places is if you go and work out in a really, really cold environment, then you're actually going to do more work during that time. That's more work stress on your muscles therefore your muscles are doing more load than they're going to hopefully recover to that and become stronger so hmm. we could do the same thing in a, in a lot hotter condition maybe you can't hit those those peak values so I, I love the idea of separating the heat and cold so you're doing a lot of your really hard intense where you really want to maximize your performance on that given day make it nice and cool right do it in a hmm. cool environment but the problem then of course is if you're only working in a cold and cold environment when you go to a hotter environment you're not going to be prepared for that so we want to make sure that you have that balance between heat and cold. So when I, I do work with a lot of, um, you know, just individual athletes uh, uh, who contact me and want some information and other things, and I kind of tell them this, you know, it's, it's great if you want people, 
read like some of the stuff that you've seen on the heat side of things. I'm like, well, I'm going to do all my workouts now in my in my closet. I'm going to have a heater in there. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, <laughs> if your goal is to heat acclimate, let's talk about how to do that the right way and make right. sure you're not doing it so it disrupts all your workouts, right? Yeah. And, and as much as I love the heat and I've done a lot of, uh, you know, pretty challenging events myself and in hot environments, um, I can tell you that that if I don't prepare a lot in the cool to make sure I'm maximizing my performance, you, you're slower. You're, you're just not as fast by by training in the hot all the time. Oh, that makes sense. Well, one, all right, this will, I promise now this will be the real last question. Um, keep going. I don't mind. That's okay. These, these, this, uh, you know, you hear a lot about like contrast, uh, getting the sauna, jump in a cold shower, getting the sauna, jump in a cold tub. Um, what is the benefit of that? Um, uh, yeah, I guess maybe that is the question, right? Like, like from even from like an athletic standpoint, like what is happening there on a physiological level level where it's, it's beneficial to go, uh, in a really short amount of time, you know, from, from two very drastic environments, I guess, I guess what's happening. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's a really interesting question, a complex question. And one that with this okay. contrast therapy, there's not enough information on there yet. Hmm. So historically in the, in the sauna use in like Finland, you know, they often, the, the classic way of looking at it is they go in the sauna for a while and they run outside and run around the snow or jump into a frozen lake. Well, <laughs> jump into jump into a very cold lake and it's not yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, right and then go back <laughs> in again i think part of that is um uh anytime you get your body up to a certain temperature or you do anything kind of thing at a steady state um you're start adapting to that so if you throw in another stressor to it now you drop temperature again now you're going to raise it up again now you're going to be activating more of these pathways again that that, that get um up regulated to changes in stress so hmm. i think that's part of it the other part of it is if you're going to go in in um, um a perfect example of this you know i've been uh, uh taking a lot of hot baths to try and raise my body temperature up um and i can tolerate as hot as i can tolerate for maybe 30 minutes or so depending on how, how hot it is um but if i get out after 10 15 minutes and then get in the shower cold shower rinse off get back on the heat again get back in the cold shower get back in again back and forth the total amount of heat i can actually get in is better is better for me i can i can, I can do it for, for a longer period of time oh, and i think really? those, those high excursions low excursions and body temperature uh make a difference i, I will huh. say that that um you know one of the again you probably saw this as a football player um but we see it in other sports as well um Cold is an interesting one uh, because a lot of really great uh, work out of a number of investigators, but in particular, I'd say Jonathan Peake down in Australia. He has done some of the, some of the probably, I think, the best work on this topic. And that is, um, you know, as a football player or as a, as a, you know, working with elite runners, oftentimes you'll see people do these real intense workouts, weightlifting or, or uh, downhill running or something like that. And they get in a cold stress, a cold tub afterwards and cool their legs off. Feels great, right? Well, we now know that, that, uh, some of the inflammation you get from these really intense exercises are really important for the adaptation of that muscle. Mm. Shut down that inflammation by taking ibuprofen, anti-inflammatories, or you use a lot of cold stress that you will feel better the next day. There's no performance benefit, but your legs will not be as sore and you might be able to perform a little better the next day. But if you keep doing that after each successive training period, you're actually decreasing the adaptation by shutting down these pathways that are so mm. important to adaptation. So it's really important that people don't walk away from something like this saying, okay, if I go and use cold stress, for example, every time I do my heavy, heavy workouts um, or my hard runs, I'm going to go and, and get in the cold. I'm going to get a cold tank or sit in the cold bath. Right. Which is exactly what we, I mean, that's, I mean, I, last time I played was like 10, 11 years ago, but that's exactly what we did. We, especially Absolutely. in like summer camp, 
you'd get done. The first thing you would do is uh, you would try and avoid the lineman tub, but then <laughs> wherever you netted out a free spot, yeah, you jumped in the cold tub. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and again, for the next day, you might feel a little better. And my, my daughter is a, is a high-level soccer player, and their coaches used to t- tell her the same thing. After, you know, during tournaments, they'd say, oh, go go sit in the cold tub, and I'd be ice tub. I'm like, okay, well, she'll feel better the next day, but as a training practice, it's not a good idea. Yeah. You're better off using okay. heat, or you can even use contrast if you want. But I, I, I really suggest people stay away from from using cold um, to right immediately after exercise uh, for, for, for during normal training. I think that's, that's, that's a mistake based on, on a number of people's work, but particularly uh, Jonathan Peake from Australia. Oh, wow. And how, how long should someone wait for kind of that positive, I'm going to call it a positive, like that inflammation process to take place, you know, like, is it, is it a matter of hours? Is it a whole day? Like how long should, should someone avoid kind of like cutting short that inflammation process? Yeah, that's a great question. And again, no one's really teased apart how long that period of time is. But I definitely say, you know, within the next three, four hours, you want to try and avoid it. Um, There's been some, and I'm not sure how well researched this is at this point, but, you know, there's been some talk in the endurance world of saying, well, after you do a long workout, um, you should avoid blueberries, excuse me, for the next three or four hours as well, Mm. because they're antioxidants. And we know that that with uh, exercise training creates an oxidative stress. Our mindset is that our mindset is that oxidative stress, inflammation are unhealthy things. But we found now that no, they're a very important part of of our adaptation in the local muscle and in the cardiovascular system to these stressors and to exercise. So the adaptation part, there are signaling molecules for that. The places where things go bad for inflammation and oxidative stress is when they're up constantly, right? Mm. If you have constant oxidative stress or you have constant low-grade inflammation, then you've got this this unhealthy profile. So to, to, to your point, um, I, I really think, you know, we haven't seen anything that says that after you've done your exercise, um, heating the muscle up, I think it's great, right? That raises your body temperature up during exercise, keeps it up a little bit longer while you're um, recovering. And there's no one's seen any true downsides to that in as far as the skeletal oh. muscle performance, other things, but the cold, it can shut. If the, the skeletal muscle is truly getting cold, right? If you just get in, you have to work out and do a cold shower real quick and just cool your skin off and feel a little better. That's not going to disrupt it. It really is getting okay. that muscle tissue cold. And that's what you get by sitting in a cold, in a cold bath. Oh, wow. It's fascinating. What, what's, what's so interesting to me too is, you know, with some of this stuff, like you said, it's, it's still being researched and there's a lot of work to be done, which I think a lot of people will just be uh, interested uh, because, well, and also it kind of just reiterates like so much of what you hear. Uh, you got to be careful what you actually, whose advice you take, because a lot of it is not necessarily grounded in research yet. Absolutely. Yep. 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 For sure. And research um, is sometimes behind what athletes are doing too, right? There's a lot of things athletes do that we're, we're just kind of trying to scratch the surface on and saying, well, how can we do that in a study? How can we get money? Unfortunately, research is expensive. So you right. know, we have to get people to fund our projects and that's, that's always a challenge. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, that, that's a good point. And, and we can end on this. Um, for people who would like to follow some of the work that you're doing, or, you know, if, if you're up for it, if people would like to get in touch with you, uh, where, where should we point them? Yeah. So if people want to get in touch with me, I'm easy to find. Uh, you just can just go to the University of Oregon website and you'll see Department of Human Physiology and or just put my last name in the search button. You'll find me. So I'm under there under faculty at the Department of Human Physiology at University of Oregon. And uh, yeah, I'm, I do try and help people out when I can. I can't answer all emails all the time. Depends on how fast and furious they come. I can right. tell you before, when, when three days before Boston becomes uh, 
the Boston Marathon happens and it's going to be harder oh. than predicted, all of a sudden people start getting a hold of me like, what can I do? It's like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> contacted me a few weeks ago. We could have chatted, but now uh, not, not so easy. But right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it can, and, and certainly, um, you know, I, I, I'm not the best at maintaining a good Twitter site and that kind of stuff, but um, I have some things that kind of forward or put in there when it's, when it's relevant. Um, uh, yeah. And uh, we try and put some stuff on our website as well. Oh, perfect. Well, you're actually busy doing the work. <laughs> versus just versus just talking <laughs> about it. Man- yeah, and managing a social media profile. Um, well, I'll tell right. you what, this has been one of my favorite episodes. I have no doubt that uh, this is going to be incredibly insightful for people. Uh, and I'm so glad that we had this conversation. If you'd be up for it, I would definitely want to have you back on in the future because I, I feel like we're just co- scratching the surface probably uh, on the work that you and your team are doing out of the University of Oregon. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. I've, I've loved this experience. And uh, uh, I, as you can hopefully tell, I'm really passionate about this from personal and professional fronts. And uh, it's just a, there's so much cool stuff, as you said, that we can we can do and talk about. And I'd, I'd be honored and happy to come back anytime for sure. And maybe interesting to see what questions your, uh, your listeners come up with. And we can uh, always focus on something on that at, at a later date. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things that I'll request um, is that people send those along. Uh, and I'll probably include a couple from my daughter because, like I said, she was so fired up about this. She actually asked me and it was it melted my heart. Um, she was like, can I be the first one to listen to it? And she's six. So <laughs> that's I, awesome. I that's like, awesome. Oh, of course you can. That's um, awesome. Fantastic. Well, well, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure having you on. Perfect. Thank you so much, Ken. You better go ask mommy, daddy. <laughs> um, for an episode about heat, it's quite cold in here. Yeah. Actually. One might say it's the optimal temperature <laughs> oh, for performance. So wow. Nicely do, done. We're going to do well today. Tip of the hat to you. Which surprised me. My so fair lady. That, that was my first takeaway. Let's roll. Yeah. His, hit me with it. He said that the optimal perform our optimal temperature for performance is fifty degrees. Yeah, which I would not have ever picked that number. I wouldn't have thought it was that cold either. What would you? I I know what I would have picked. What would you have picked? Mm, like sixty sounds fair to me. I would have said sixty-five, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, maybe sixties well, because sixty-five is actually warmer than you think. It is warmer than you think, and now thinking back, well. Okay, so I, I know that I was going to talk about this when you brought this up, but now is a good time to do it. Um, I also thought it was really interesting that he said that like we're anytime someone does work physically, it, it's we're, we're usually actually only putting like twenty five percent of our maximum effort uh, towards actually generating that work, and the other seventy five percent right is all losses heat through like metabolism. It's so crazy. I, I'm somewhat close. Yeah. As to what he that said. Sounds, that sounds about right. People are like, oh, sure. We just played it five minutes ago. I so just, I just that, listened to it. That I, sounds... I took really detailed notes. The problem is <laughs> my handwriting is terrible, so I can't even read them. And now this it's on the fly. True. This is very true. That's why I use the iPad, but no iPad today. What are you going to do? Uh, I would have thought, yeah, I would have thought maybe 60. But what I was going to say is like sometimes when I go down to the gym, it's 65 degrees. Like I know that because I look at the thermostat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll start out with like a light hoodie and by the end of it, I'm down into the shirt or I'm shirtless baby Yeah, because I'm sweating. Yeah. So 65, not optimal. Too warm. Well, but it's crazy though, right? Like thinking about it in that way, 
it's like when you do anything, like any type of like real physical exertion, like that so much of like the energy is getting put toward just like releasing the heat that you've created. Mm-hmm. You know, like everyone knows intuitively, like working yeah. out where it's hot or running when it's really hot versus on a nice cool day is more difficult. Yeah. It's just interesting to hear like the science behind why that is. Right. And I never would have thought of it that way. No, not in those terms. No, never. You kind of like, yeah, you kind of know, but when someone explains it to you, you're like, oh, so that's why. Yeah. I didn't realize your body's working that hard. So it makes me want to- To regulate your temperature. Drop the temperature in the gym downstairs. Oh my God. Don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. I'll see if I can get it down to <laughs> can 50. Can I just say that- That might take AC in the winter, uh, but we'll get her down there. 65 indoors feels a lot warmer than 65 outdoors. Go on. Do you know expand. what I mean? Like I when, think so. When it's 65 in the house, this road. I could be like in a t-shirt and I feel fine. But if I'm outside and it's 65, I'm like bundled. Oh, I'm the opposite. Oh. 65 in the house. I'll And I normally would prefer to be cold. We do not run at the same temperature. We are because completely different. At night, last night I had essentially five blankets on me because I, yeah. I had a sheet. Yep. And then I had the um, duvet. Mm-hmm. With like the down thing in it. Oh yeah. And then on top of that, I had a fold in and a half, one of those like fuzzy blankets. So that <laughs> essentially counts it looks for like a, It looks like two. a bear pelt. No, 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 not that, not that oh, one. Oh, we're not even there no, yet. No, the fuzzy blankets, you know, that are just like blankets. Ah, yeah. That was folded in half. So that was basically like two blankets. Cause I don't like it on my side. Yeah. So I have to put it on top mm-hmm. of the duvet. And then on top of that, I had a bear pelt. Top of that, you had the bear pelt. And I was still, it took me like 20 minutes to get warm and be able to fall asleep. I crawled into bed and I believe your words were good luck finding me under here. (laughs) (laughs) Might've been one of the funniest things you've ever said. Uh, Yeah, no. And I would prefer, I actually love the experience of getting into the bed, having it not be like frigid, but cold. And and I dread that experience. And then just feeling that little like cocoon of warmth slowly build up. Oh, I dread that experience. And I feel like, and then like if I go over and cuddle on your side, and then it's so warm. It's like a cocoon over there. And then I have to go to my side to go to sleep and it's freezing. And I'm like, oh no, this is like, it takes like 20 minutes to warm everything up. And that's but when, that's I, when you're you need to cuddle on, on my side so that it's warm over there. And then you can leave and go to the coldest. So you're, you're making all these How recommendations <laughs> operating under the assumption that I want to cuddle. Yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you like a cool pillow? No. No? I want it warm. I you want, want everything wa- warm. You want a warm pillow. Yeah. <laughs> Sweaty too. No, I'm just Do kidding. you ever flip your pillow over to get to the cool side in the middle of the night? Of course not. Only what? if I've drooled. <laughs> just kidding. I don't drool. I mean, that's like an every night occurrence for me. Yeah, it's weird. I'm just searching for that cool. The, you know, cool is the other side of the pillow. Yeah, People aren't I, saying that I, like I never, a bad thing. I never understood that because I don't think that's what I'd ever want. Okay. I guess... Moving on then. Okay. We spent too much time talking about Weirdo. that. Weirdo. Uh, optimal temp, 50 degrees. I, I thought that was cold, but it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Knowing like when you're really exerting yourself, just how warm you can get. And it makes sense from the standpoint of it's going to help you more efficiently. Kind of like I'm going to use the term wick the heat. Oh my God. <laughs> I think that's reserved for like wicking moisture, uh, but I'm going to say it for heat. Uh, so that was a good one. You actually picked this one too um, about how you shouldn't be leveraging 
cold plunges right after a workout. Yeah. That's, isn't that crazy that I like, and I feel like people still do that. Oh yeah. I have heard, uh, and I think maybe within the last year that you, that might not be the best idea. Yeah. Well, he did say it's a hot topic right now. Yeah. So maybe that's, maybe that's why I'm aware of it. Uh, but no, like, I mean, that was routine. Like actually Mm -hmm. thought we were being responsible by cold plunging after a hard workout. Yeah. You know, and to his point, he said, I'm so glad that that's not that I would ever do it, but I'm so glad that that's not what you're supposed to do. Cause that if there was ever a situation where you were like, Oh, you need to cold plunge right now. And I like felt like I needed to listen to you. Now I know I don't have to listen to you. Okay. I don't think that's what he said. Exactly. (laughs) He said, don't, he said, don't, cold plunge too quickly after a workout yeah, because it but he, he negates said, some he, of the I effects mean, of your workout. And to be fair, he said like there's still work and research to be done, but he said for like three to four hours. Yeah. Now he said like a 30 second cold shower is not what he's talking about here, which actually helps clarify it for me. Cause I, I do, you yeah. know, like, like the cold shower. Um, but I've stopped doing that since I was made aware. I feel like of, you're in there longer than 30 seconds. Oh, so. I'm in there for at least two minutes, baby. Yeah. Once I get comfy. So maybe I'll he is referring to you. Ah, uh, maybe he is. <laughs> I think he is. Damn it. Two minutes. It's a long time. <laughs> Damn it. To be frozen. Um, but yeah, so that's a little counterintuitive. However, he did say, like, if you're in a situation where, like, let's say you're <laughs> playing in a tournament, right? Yeah. Or like, like these Olympians, right? They run their, their qualifying meet on like a Friday night. Then they have like, you know, the finals on Saturday. Like they're trying to stay fresh for Saturday. They're less concerned about like adaption. They're like, I want my legs to feel fresh again. He said it does have like, yeah, yeah, it does have like utility there. So like if you're trying to be fresh Mm -hmm. the next day for some reason, uh, don't be afraid of it. But if you're trying to like get the most out of your workout with, which I think most people are, uh, stay away from the cold plunge folks right after. Yeah. Learn something new every day. Another speaking of something new that I learned. No, just let them rip. Come on. That you shouldn't eat blueberries after a workout. I thought that was so interesting because they're antioxidants and he said that oxidants are necessary. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think he said there's still research to be done, but I oftentimes, you're right, like after a workout thinking I'm being healthy. Grab a handful of blueberries. Big old handful of blueberries. Yeah, it's crazy. Right down the hatch. I know. Blueberries are like the easiest berry to eat. So we have, we always have blueberries. Yep. So we're just grabbing handfuls of them all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kids mm-hmm. are too. What's your second favorite berry? No, that's not my favorite berry. Oh. No, 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 no. This is convenient. It's just the easiest berry to eat. My yeah. first favorite is raspberry. Second favorite is strawberries. Now we're always supposed to rinse berries. Yes, Kenny. Under In all circumstances. Every circumstance. Hmm. Why? Are they not rinsing them prior to us getting them? Or are we worried about maybe, transit? Maybe, but like then they're in the store and like maybe no, I get it. put their dirty hands on them. It's just sometimes it's the added Who step knows? that I'm like, well. You know, run your hands under there. These are probably pretty clean. Ugh, gross. I rinse them. No, you don't. But I think about it. Uh, okay, yeah, blueberries. That was that was interesting. See, that's why the show exists. Yeah. You know how many people are out there just like us, coming up from the gym, pounding blueberries, <laughs> hopping in their cold plunge, and they're like, "Why am I not jacked?" Here's why. Thank you, Doctor Vincent. Uh, Something I'm I'm trying to oh okay so I have one last takeaway but I think the overarching theme here and you said it is it's not ideal no matter like what whether you enjoy being hot or cold 
what's not a good idea is to just constantly create an environment where you're, I think, I think the term is like thermostatic. Like you're not experiencing these big fluctuations in either like heat or cold. Yeah. Um, because it sounds like, you know, he took us through some of the physiological benefits from the heat exposure side. Uh, what I would love to do is either have him back or maybe I'll try and get someone else who specializes more on like, you know, the benefits of, of cold exposure. Um, but there's a lot of physiological processes and adaptations that take place that are advantageous. So it's like, yeah, I totally get it. And I don't know what it is about the winter. Like, even if it's like 68 degrees in our house, I just like, like having a sweatshirt on, Uh huh. you know, like I just, yeah, and I'm like, I need to do more to kind of break myself outside of that little comfortable, uh, cocoon that I've created. <laughs> you know what I mean? Although I do take the dog out in the snow and I wear shorts. Oh yeah. I don't wear any pants out in the snow with well, the dog. I know. That's actually I wear true. My, I wear my old lady robe. That's actually true. And your Crocs. Anybody, anybody with a pair of binoculars <laughs> and who knows where we live. <laughs> That's 100% true. Uh, they're not real Crocs though. They're fake Crocs. You can get yeah, them on and Amazon. And I actually think when I do that, like when I like yeah. am in my robe or something like not meant for winter and I have to go get the chickens, I'm like, I'm doing something good for my body right now. I'm like cold plunging basically. You're hardcore cold plunging. <laughs> Yeah. And I'm like running through the snow in your Crocs yep. with like snow seeping into the holes. And I'm like, oh, I will say those Crocs are not all weather. No, That's the one miscalculation. You, yeah. When actually when you were ordering them, cause he ordered our mm-hmm. entire family, mm-hmm. these knockoff Crocs from Amazon. And when you were ordering them, I was like, that doesn't seem like the best winter letting the dog out choice, but you were excited about it. So I didn't say anything. So they do pretty well in the rain, surprisingly. Okay. However, the <laughs> snow not made not made for snow. No, because the snow packs its way right in those tiny little. We holes. needed to like slip on duck boots or something with like fuzzy inside. Yeah, but I mean, these Crocs were a really good deal. <laughs> yeah, I bet they were. <laughs> I bet those Crocs were a great deal. Yeah, that was a Black Friday steal. Fifteen bucks a pair. Nice. Uh, I'll link to them, folks, or just hit me up direct. You know, direct message me. <laughs> I can send you the link. No, no affiliate taken. Um. <laughs> Okay, so don't stay thermostatic, but here was what I thought is broadly applicable, right, to anyone who listened. Um, Based on his research, right, especially, I I can't remember that marathoner's name. I wish I wrote it down. But based on that kind of like first use case, um, prepared that athlete to be able to perform in, you know, what would be like extreme heat conditions, right? And the concern was, well, what if it's cooler, are we actually going to like train him to his detriment to some extent? Right. And what they found and apparently what he's found with some other tests um, is, you know, the pot, the adaptations that you get by training in like high heat environments can actually translate into like, you know, uh, benefits gained for cooler temperatures and just everyday life. Um, so what I thought was really cool is you don't mm-hmm. need to be in his environmental chamber to get these adapt adaptations, right? <laughs> uh, you can actually just go in your hot tub. Yeah. Or a sauna. Yeah. So uh, I want to get a sauna is what I'm basically saying. Yeah. Yeah. You've wanted one for years though. For years. Are you on board? Yeah, of course I am. I want to turn. Are you on board for the purposes of getting through this segment of the podcast or like you actually on board? Like maybe if I put Why would some I not options? want a sauna? Oh, really? Yeah, of course I no would. No pushback here. No pushback. No. Oh. That's a gift for both of us. Sounds like we're getting a sauna, folks. Maybe. I got to look at how much they cost. <laughs> but I'll think about it for sure. Yeah, we'll ponder it. Uh, but no, I thought that was great. So it's like, look, you're like, 
listening to this, you're like, this is great. I would love to get the benefits of this, but I really don't feel like putting on my sweatpants and sweatshirt and going running out in the 90 degree heat. Dip into a sauna. Yeah. Take a leisurely dip. Yeah. And it sounds like it doesn't take that much to start to see some of these benefits. I wish that you had asked about uh, the red light. What are the red light saunas called? Infrared. Infrared. Yeah. Yeah. I meant to, but I felt we didn't need to. Uh, okay. No, I'll ask him. Yeah. You know what? He said, if you get any good follow-up questions and likewise for people listening at home, if, if you yeah. had any follow-up questions. A question from me. Uh, yeah. Question from me. we he was uh, pretty adamant that he'd be happy to answer them. So I will, I'll aggregate your feedback. Thank you. Note taken. Appreciate it. Um, I'll have my assistant record that and uh, <laughs> pass that along to the appropriate authorities on the matter. Okay. <laughs> I think that was pretty good. Three solid takeaways. Uh, yep. Work out in colder weather. If you're trying to maximize your gains, folks, stay out of the cold plunge for three to four hours. Don't and uh, you know what? Hot tub, not just for swingers parties. Oh. You know what I mean? It's for people trying to let their hair down and actually live longer too. Oh, wow. I think that's actually how he said it. Yeah, that is, that's word for word. He's going to listen to this back and be like, what? He's like, this guy's bastardized my life's work. Um, okay. Well, cool. We've got a couple good shows coming up. Very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. One of the guests also recommended to me by Dr. Christopher Minson. Very excited to have him on. But I'm not going to spoil that here, folks. Um, okay. Well, hey, if you're listening, thank you very much. Uh, I know when you listen to this, the holidays will likely be upon us. Uh, so I hope everyone has a very happy holidays. Enjoy some time with family and friends. Unplug. Get some rest. And we will see you in the new year. Take a sauna. <laughs> take, a, take a sauna. <laughs> All right, folks. We'll talk to you soon. Have a good one. Bye.